Welcome to all of you from the other uh, Sunday school class. I know that uh, I think there's some illness that... uh, So, if it looks like our numbers are swelling, it's artificial. Let's take just a moment and uh, go to the Lord in prayer this morning. We're going to look at... um, We're going to begin theology proper, and we're going to look at the existence and knowability of God. So let's pray for a moment. Thank you, Lord, for this time to dig into your word, to use our minds, to use the brains that you've given us, Lord, enabled and illumined by the Holy Spirit, to grasp what is the height and the depth of the knowledge of God. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us this day to do this, and though we All of us here, to my knowledge, believe in God. How wonderful it is to see how logical, how biblical, and how absolutely trustworthy you are that we believe in you. A God we have never seen and yet clearly exists. And because you exist, Lord, that demands a response on our part. And that response is found, of course, through Christ And we pray, Lord, that our time this morning would be useful to your people and would be honoring and glorifying to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So today we're going to do the existence and knowability of God. And we're starting what um, some call theology proper. We have to distinguish that from just theology, even though theology means the study of God. Theology came to mean very quickly the study of all things about God and about doctrine. So... Uh, we're going to, uh, in, in this case, call it theology proper. That we're actually studying God. So, let me just ask you a question. And just, you, you don't even have to raise your hand. Just throw out some answers. How do you know God is there? Say, say it loud. Creation? The Bible? The conscience? Anything else? Internal witness. That means your gut. What else? Anything else? Logic. You see how easy that was? Let's close in prayer because we are done. (laughs) You instinctively just came up with basically all the points we're going to go after this morning because you know that God exists. Sinners have to be taught that God doesn't exist. They have to be convinced of that. And so we want to talk about the existence and knowability of God. Now, before we really get into this, how does this apply to you? you know, I really believe God exists. Don't you like to just know that the winning team is an even better winning team than you thought? I, I like that. So we're going to walk through. We're going to start outside of the Bible and then move towards Scripture. And you'll see the logic behind that as we go. Let's talk first about the incomprehensibility of God. Wayne Grudem gives a great definition Because God is infinite and humans are finite, human beings can never fully understand God. And this is important for us because if you believe you could fully understand God, ultimately then that puts you on the same level with God. You can catch up to him. That makes God finite and that causes all kinds of problems. Because how can a finite God keep you safe, keep your spirit safe for all of eternity? This is a position of humility, that we will never fully understand God. And this is a good thing. We've said this before, but you know, Psalm 16, the end of the psalm, says that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And if you can comprehend this, I I think we can comprehend learning something new about God every day for all eternity. I think we can comprehend that. But can we comprehend that when you've been doing that for, say, a billion years, you haven't actually made progress? You, you haven't made a dent into what you can learn about God. And at that point, our brain cells begin to just fry and fuse because we can't comprehend that. We're beings that understand things in terms of progress. That you, uh, the old joke is, how do you eat an elephant? Well, one bite at a time. How do you comprehend God? One day at a time, but you'll never make progress. That's why at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Can I put it this way? When you've been with God for a trillion years, tomorrow he will surprise you. Every day. That's pretty phenomenal. Bray, in his Doctrine of God, says God is a being who exists in eternity, free of all the limitations of time and space. 
In his being or essence, he is different from us or from anything else in the created order and therefore is fundamentally unknowable. Now, that's where we, we go, wait a minute, but I know God only because he let you. That's the only reason. And we'll talk about this as we go. The incomprehensibility of God assumes rightly that God is unknowable. He's so different from us. What we know about God is only what he's revealed to us. And we could put it this way. Up here is God. Down here is everything else. How do those two connect? There's only one way they connect, and that is revelation. In between, God must reveal himself to everything else. He must reveal himself to his creation. There's a biblical basis for the incomprehensibility of God. Psalm 145, verse 3. His greatness is unsearchable. We don't know who he is. We can't search out God. You can't research God. You can't go to a, a website and, and type in God and have some outside source tell you about God. Everything we know about God, he told us. Isaiah 40, verse 28, there is no limit to his understanding. Romans eleven thirty four. who has known the mind of the Lord? Whenever you say, I think God would have me do X, Y, and Z, why are you able to say that? Because you've already seen what God has said in his word. Otherwise, you wouldn't know. An unbeliever who says, well, I think God wants us to, you just stop and say, why would you even say that? On what basis would you say that? There's no basis at all. So how do we explain this? Well, we can never fully understand every single thing about God. We can understand some things, the things he's revealed to us. We can know God partially. And all that we know about God in, in, in part is true. And so the incomprehensibility of God is really kind of our inability to know God unless he reveals himself. So what does that do to your thankfulness for the Bible? It helps us understand, I would not have known God. I would have gone to eternity. And the first time I meet God would be at the great white throne judgment. The first time I understood his existence, unless he made himself known. And he has made himself known. Now, I want to start for a while on some traditional proofs for the existence of God. And I put proofs in, uh, oh, this is, I forgot, I had a slide on this. This is uh, how you see God. We see God through uh, the revelation that is right there in between God and everything else. If you don't have revelation, there is a big stop sign there. Now, traditional proofs for God. And I put this in quotes because nobody can really prove the existence of God, nor does God require us to prove his existence. I, I, I can't imagine God saying, boy, I'm so thankful that mankind has been trying to prove my existence since I've had trouble uh, explaining it myself. But we do want to go into these. The proofs for the existence of God have been constructed by philosophers and theologians at various times in history to persuade people that it's irrational to reject God's existence. And so for that reason, it's good to explore these. It's simply to say it's not rational. It doesn't make any sense to reject the existence of God. The, ra the rational arguments for God in the Christian perspective were first systematized by Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. He's the first one to kind of go through this. And I just put a couple of notes about these. You don't need to try to remember these. It's just important to understand uh, that they exist. There's a few of them. There's, first of all, called the cosmological argument. That is not about makeup. It is about the cosmos. Um, the easy way to remember the cosmological argument is respell it. Cause, as in cause and effect. Cosmological. Because that's what it's about. It, is, it argues from cause and effect. That everything around us is capable of non-existence. And if everything is capable of non-existence, then that means it, that there had to be a cause. There, a cause for it to exist. Everything has a cause. And so if everything has a cause, then you would have to ask logically, what was the cause? And so we would say that there is a first cause that something had to begin everything. Now, that doesn't argue implicitly uh, or explicitly rather for the existence of God. It just argues that there is a cause of everything. And that cause must be personal. Why must the cause be personal? Because we are personal beings and an impersonal force of some sort couldn't cause something that is personal. So that's the cosmological argument. 
Then you have the teleological argument. It tells us that there is, this goes a little further, that there's intelligence, there's design, there's purpose in the universe. It comes from the Greek word telos, which just means a goal or an end, meaning that, that a purpose has been achieved. Um, we see this, uh, uh, the perfect form of this verb uh, in, uh, the, at the cross of Christ when Jesus says, it is finished, tetelestai, which is the perfect form of telos, it is finished, it's been per- the purpose has been achieved. So how, how do we state the teleological argument? Teleological argument basically says there must be a designer because everything in the universe has a design. And that's very obvious to us as Christians. But this is a concept some have called irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity says that the elements of a structure had to happen at the same time in order to function. By the way, that alone disproves evolution. Because, for example, the human eye couldn't have progressed. You, you couldn't have, well, first of all, the human eye just started as a big rubber ball. And then an iris came about, and then nerves came in over this course of billions of years. It can't happen. It had to, boom, it had to be there at once. Otherwise, the rest of it can't function. So there has to be a designer, and God must be that designer. There's an old argument given by William Paley called the pocket watch argument. And the pocket watch argument basically said, if you encountered a pocket watch without knowing what it is, your logical conclusion would be that there must be a designer. If you opened the back and saw the little wheels turning and saw how it all works together, all of those components had to come at the same time and had to be kick-started. And so the pocket watch argument is just very logical. It says if there's a design, there must be a designer. One theologian said that there is a better chance of taking the contents of a Lowe's or a Home Depot, loading them in a giant military aircraft and dumping it out the back from 30,000 feet and having it fall to the ground to form a building. There's a much better chance mathematically of that than of there being design without a designer. It can't be. Now, there are some weaknesses to the teleological argument. Um, Why does the designer have to be God and why does the designer have to be the God of the Bible? So that leaves you open to saying, well, yeah, I believe there's a designer. I just don't think it's the God of the Bible. Um, It makes a jump from theism to Christianity pretty difficult and that gets us into Christian theism, which we don't want to mess with here uh, too much because Christian theism can have good connotations or bad connotations uh, in that... Uh, you're not really a Christian if you just believe the concepts of Christianity. You're a Christian if you trust Christ. That's another issue for another day. There's a designer who's very powerful, but if you follow the teleological argument alone, are all designs perfect today? No. Buildings fall down. uh, Trees fall over. Fires happen. And so the logical argument would say, well, there is, there is a flaw in the design. It's amazing. But if there's a flaw in the design, then there must be a flaw in, in whom? In the designer. And so that doesn't account for the existence of sin. It doesn't account for the existence of sinful humanity. So that's the teleological argument. It helps us, but it doesn't prove the existence of the God of the Bible. Then you have the anthropological argument, or sometimes called the moral argument. The anthropological, anthropology is the study of mankind, and so the anthropological argument says that we have morals, and they had to come from somewhere. Why do we have morals? Well, the the proofs here are that all human beings have an innate sense of right and wrong. We have a sense of justice. And and you might say, you know, I watch the news. I think there's a lot of people who don't have a sense of justice whatsoever. And that could be true to a certain extent, but everyone agrees on certain things. I don't want somebody breaking into my house. Neither do you. Nobody does. I don't want somebody cutting me off in traffic. Neither do you. Nobody does. I don't want somebody stealing something I've earned with my own hands. Nobody does. And so there is an inherent sense of morality and it had to come from somewhere. And so there is a sense in which there had to be a supreme moral being. There had to be a cause of morality. There had to be a lawgiver. And we would say the lawgiver must be the God of the Bible because he is the only God 
that we can say has made a law. Now, there are some strengths to this. The strength of this is that the anthropological argument actually helps us disprove evolution. Now, what? hang on a minute here. What do you mean by that? The anthropological argument helps us disprove evolution because morality includes self-sacrifice, right? All human beings, to a certain extent, value self-sacrifice. If you find one who absolutely doesn't whatsoever, we generally call them a psychopath. But self-sacrifice and evolution don't go together because evolution says survival of what? The fittest, which is all these people, if they really believed evolution, would just say, let's let coronavirus go and do whatever because evolution is at work. But they don't believe that. They want to stop the weakest from being hurt and from being harmed. And so the anthropological argument tells us that evolution doesn't make sense because self-sacrifice and evolution can't go together. There is a weakness to it, though. The weakness to the anthropological argument, the moral argument, is relativistic morals, that morals change with every generation, right? A generation ago, if you said, what is a text? Somebody would say, well, it's what you find in a book. Today, you say, what is a text? It's what I find on my phone. A gen- when texting first started, when did you answer a text? Whenever you got to it. Today, if you don't answer a text in five minutes, you're considered rude. Morals change. They adapt. Uh, sometimes for wrong, sometimes uh, it's just different. And so there is, a, there is a, a sense in which you can't say the moral argument proves the existence of God because morals are continually changing. If morals are continually changing from a human standpoint, then the, the origin of the morals must be continually changing as well. So there's a weakness there. Then there's one more big argument, the ontological argument. Ontology is just the, the study of existence. It's the study of being. This was formulated by Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century. It's not empirical, meaning it's not scientific. It is a rational, what we would call an a priori argument. A priori just says that we start from a presupposition. We start from uh, an assumption. And that assumption is that every human being has uh, a conception of what some have called a greatest conceivable being. That everyone believes in a higher power, if you want to say that. And so uh, that doesn't prove, again, the God of the Bible. It doesn't prove the Trinity. It doesn't prove any of those things. But it does prove that because every human being has a concept of a greatest conceivable being, that there must be one. We're, we're born with that. We're born with that. Under- so we're still outside the Bible. How do these proofs work? Let's evaluate them, first of all. Um, no one's going to come to Christ because of these proofs. I've never, I've heard hundreds of Christian testimonies. I've baptized people. I have never, in the baptistry that we set up right over there, I've never had anybody with a tear in their eye say the teleological argument led me to faith in Christ. That's never happened. What it does do is give us confidence that we're on the right track so far. So there are some ways we can evaluate this. Uh, these proofs. First of all, they show that belief in God is not irrational. That belief in, in God in a higher power of some sort is not irrational whatsoever. Uh, Wayne Grudem says it this way, they are valid in that they correctly evaluate the evidence and correctly reason to a true conclusion. In fact, the universe does have God as its cause. It does show evidence of purposeful design. The actual facts referred to in these proofs therefore are true. And in that sense, the proofs are valid. But in another sense, if valid means able to compel agreement even from, from those who begin with false assumptions, then of course none of these proofs is valid because not one of them is able to compel agreement with everyone who considers them. Uh, translation, you may be hardened in your heart and you may hear the cosmological and the teleological and the anthropological and the ontological arguments and still say, I still don't believe it. Why? That Now we're getting into the concept of spiritual darkness that you refuse to believe even that which is logic. Rational arguments also have a problem in that they tend to minimize sin. You notice that we barely touched on the idea of sin. 
Uh, we're just talking about the existence of God. It doesn't talk about how God interacts with mankind. Also, if we go too much into these, I don't want to spend a lot of time on them because if we, if we took, for example, an entire uh, month on the cosmological argument, two months on the teleological argument, it would be interesting, but it would imply at least at a subtle level that God's revelation of himself is insufficient. It would almost say, thank you, God, for the Bible, but we're going to move beyond that at this point. Jesus said this in Luke 16, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. So what we're doing right now is backwards of what we normally ought to do. We're reasoning toward Scripture. Ultimately, though, we ought to reason from Scripture, not toward it. Uh, John Stott said this. I think I have that quote up here. He said, In evangelism, then, we need to recognize that the men to whom we preach have minds. We shall not ask them to stifle their minds, but to open them, and in particular to open them to receive a divine illumination in order to understand the divine revelation. We shall not seek to murder their intellect since it was given to them by God, but neither shall we flatter it since it is finite and fallen. We shall endeavor to reason with them, but only from revelation the while admitting our need and theirs for the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. This is a, uh, a, a tremendous statement of balance here. He says we shall not murder their intellect because God has given it to them. The Christian faith, the existence of God, the Trinity, all of the things we hold dear are logical. They make sense and they are comprehensible with the mind to the degree that God wants us to comprehend them. Comprehend them. On the other hand, we don't say just think harder and you can figure out that God exists. We don't say, listen, you're smart. You are so smart, you need to come to faith in Christ. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians? There are not many of you wise, not many of you noble. In other words, Christians are mostly idiots. And that's just what he's saying. You look at the church of Jesus Christ, compare it to a boardroom in a Fortune 500 company, and we look like a ragtag bunch compared to those really smart guys. And so, yes, we have minds, but we don't flatter the mind. We... We are dependent on the Holy Spirit. This is why a man with two PhDs who refuses to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ looks at the Bible and scoffs because he hasn't been illumined. And it's the same reason on the opposite side that a five-year-old can hear God so loved the world that he sent his only son to forgive you of your sins. And the five-year-old says, I believe that. That is the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So, that is kind of evaluating those proofs. They, they're helpful, but they have limits. Let's start to hone in now, close in on the Word of God. We start, first of all, with the general revelation of God. We're still talking about existence and knowability. How do we know that God is there? Here's a good definition for the general revelation of God. General revelation is the disclosure of God in nature and the constitution of man, whereby all people gain an introductory knowledge of God. General revelation is the disclosure of God in nature and the constitution of man, whereby all people gain an introductory knowledge of God. In other words, God has made himself known. This sort of goes back to the pocket watch argument, but we do this with nature. You look at the sky. Uh, Psalm 19 says to look at the heavens. You look at the sky and you say, you know, Somebody had to put that there. there. There's no way that that just happened. How does God reveal himself generally? Well, we have, first of all, the revelation of God in nature. We have the revelation of God in nature, uh, and it impacts, first of all, the unbeliever. Romans 1, 18 through 21 tells us that all people everywhere have an elementary knowledge of God just by looking around them. There is an elementary knowledge of God. Everyone is responsible for the knowledge of God that's been given to them. By the way, this goes, uh, this goes to that argument, well, what if the gospel isn't given to a certain part of the world? Well, according to Romans 1, we're responsible for the fact that we can look around and see that there is a maker, that there is somebody who is out there. And in fact, Romans 1 tells us, that though mankind knows God, they choose not to be thankful, they choose not to worship. That is, that is a, a conscious choice. 
We have sinful hearts and they suppress the truth. And because of these facts, God is angry with man. Man is without excuse and God is just in his anger. So that impacts the unbeliever. The revelation of God in nature also impacts the believer. Psalm 119, 1 through 6 says that um, the, the, the creation of God is everywhere. shows that God is everywhere. And it shows that we are to praise God, the creator. And so uh, we consider the heavens, consider the stars. Now, can you come to faith in Christ solely on general revelation? Would you look at a pine tree and say, based on this pine tree, I believe that God must be triune and that he must have sent his son to die for my sins so that I can go to heaven someday? No. But general revelation does prepare you for special revelation. That as you get now to um, uh, the special revelation of God, which we'll talk about in a moment, it makes sense. Oh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's why pine trees make sense. That's why the, all of creation seems to have order to it. Now, we'll get to special revelation in a moment. So you have the revelation of God in nature. You also have the revelation of God in man's constitution, how we're made. Romans 2, 14 and 15, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Let me stop right there. What does it mean when he says the Gentiles don't have the law? Almost everybody on planet Earth has never read the Bible. That's just a fact. They don't have the law. And particularly in Paul's day, when you couldn't just go down to a bookstore or go on Amazon and buy a Bible, almost nobody had read the law of God. They had never read, you shall not murder. Yet, what does humanity believe in general? You shall not murder. They've never read, you shall not bear false witness. You shall not lie. Yet, what does humanity across the board believe? Lying is bad because it hurts people. And so... We have a law written in our hearts. Verse 15 of Romans 2. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Their conscience bears witness too. Even wicked people, when they do something wrong, to a certain degree have a conscience that is active. When you have somebody with a conscience that doesn't act anymore, again, what do we call them? We call them psychopaths. Sociopaths, people who, who can't feel anymore or never could, and that's unusual to us. Pagan non-Jews showed by their actions that they generally knew the difference between right and wrong. This is what Paul is saying. There's a basic knowledge of right and wrong. They instinctively do what the law requires. Even though they've never read the Bible, they've never seen the scriptures, their morality is demonstrated that God has placed his law of right and wrong in their hearts. Even unbelievers, if you ask them, do you believe you're a good person? The old way of the master argument. Do you believe you're a good person? If they say yes, and you ask them, why do you believe you're a good person? What will they do then? They will list the things that they're doing that they believe are good. And you know what? Most of the time, they're correct. Not correct in that they're good people. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But they're correct in their morality. If you ask anybody, do you consider yourself to be a good person? And they say yes. And then you ask the follow-up question, what are the things you've done that, that are good? They'll never say, well, I feel it's good that I shot my neighbor last week. Uh, he's just a real pain. Um, I feel it's good that I've cheated the IRS for 25 years now. I feel it's a great thing that, that I, I don't just spank my kids. I abuse them and I send them to the hospital regularly with bruises. Nobody ever says that. What do they say? They list their self-righteous acts that you could go to the Bible and find corresponding laws. And so God has revealed himself in that in the very heart of your heart as a human being made in the image of God, he's already stamped his morality on you. We just choose to reject it. We just choose to go against that. Now, why is this called general revelation? It's knowledge about God that's universally available. Everyone can see this. What does the Bible say? Look at the stars. Just look up. This knowledge about God is introductory. And we've said this already. It doesn't reveal the Trinity. It doesn't reveal the Messiah. It doesn't reveal the cross. Science 
is helpful in that we we can see the intricacies of how God works, but science doesn't lead you to the gospel, and we're always a thousand years behind everything. Every time we make a scientific discovery, it takes 500 years for it to actually be applied in real life. Faith comes from what? From hearing the word of God, not from looking at general revelation. But there is an impact of general revelation. God exists, and my assumption then as a human being is that if God exists, he is the creator. If he is the creator and he's that much bigger than me, then he is a judge, and so I'm left without excuse. I've heard people say to my face, people who have never read the Bible, never appeared in church one time in their lives, say, I'm worried about what God thinks. Why is that? Because God has placed that worry in their hearts. They want, to, they want to please God at whatever level they think they can. God is made known to mankind, and so because of this, we're accountable to God. This is part of God's justice also, just a little side note here, because I think we could make the case that God would be unjust if he made no evidence whatsoever for his existence, and yet we were accountable to know him. That would be unjust. And so he's very just in that he's placed evidence all around us, both in nature and in our constitution. And so general revelation causes worship for the believer and tells of the existence of God to the unbeliever. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather worship God in a back alley in New York City or would you rather worship God in the mountains? Why? Because we're instinctively closer to God around his creation, not all the junk that we made from his creation. And so there's, a, there's an instinctive difference there. So that's just general revelation. Now we get more specific to special revelation. Millard Erickson, in his theology, defines special revelation. He says, by special revelation, we mean God's manifestation of himself to particular persons at definite times and places, enabling those persons to enter into a redemptive relationship with him. I like that definition because it focuses on the redemptive relationship with God. Special revelation is something by which God will bridge the gap between holy God and unholy man. And so that redemptive part is important. Uh, Dr. Larry Pettigrew, he says that special revelation is God's personal disclosure of himself to us through the living and written word so that we might come to know him in salvation and glorify him through our lives. Now, Pettigrew takes it even a step further. Not only do we know him in salvation because of his special revelation, but that enables us to give glory to God. Ah, why does God give special revelation? Ultimately, so that what? He may receive glory. That's his reason for doing everything. And so that, I like that definition because that helps us get to doxology. Special revelation is personal. You can't look at an elm tree and say, oh, this is God's name is Yahweh. I don't know that from looking at an elm tree. But he tells us his name. He enters into personal relationships with us. What's the mode by which we enter into this personal relationship? The mode is what the Bible calls covenants. We are, we are part of what? The new covenant in Christ. When the Lord Jesus instituted the Lord's table, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Those are covenants. How do we enter into relationships on this earth? Through covenants. It, it's, a, it's a shadow of the relationship between God and man. We covenant with a man or a woman in marriage. We covenant with one another in the church. We enter into relationships through covenants. God is, is, uh, has revealed himself in that he has identified with us. He identified with us by becoming, what? A man. And so he's fully revealed himself there. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But when we say that the special revelation of God is personal, and I want to be very clear about this, that doesn't mean that we can say, as I've heard some unbelievers say, you know, my relationship with God is between me and him. It is very, very personal to me. It's very, very private. Let's be very clear. Personal faith, yes. Is our faith private? No. Our faith is not private. Our faith is personal. When an unbeliever says my faith is personal, whatever they're characterizing faith, what they mean is, is that it's subjective. 
It is what I make it. Uh, you hear phrases like I've made a deal with the man upstairs or God and I are like this. And, you know, they, they picture themselves as close to God. Well, that's subjective. That's different than personal. Personal just means that our relationship with God is real, but it is based on propositional truth. It isn't just based on a subjective feeling or that somehow uh, there's this mystical relationship that I can't really explain to you. If you can't explain your relationship with God, then you don't have a relationship with God, very simply. So it is personal. That is how special revelation is. Now, let's finish up with what are the types of special revelation? You might be surprised at what comes first. At the very top of the list is the fact that my slide will not advance. You'll never know. There it is. At the top of the list is not the Bible. At the top of the list is the living word, Jesus Christ. He's the pinnacle. He's the ultimate special revelation. He is complete revelation. Colossians 2.9, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Everything you need to know about God, everything you may know about God dwells in Christ. There is nothing about Christ that leaves your knowledge of God incomplete. That's why we're, you know, some people say, well, you shouldn't just be the church of Jesus Christ. You should be the church of the Trinity, which is fine. But if we're the church of Jesus Christ, we're also the church of the Trinity. Because everything you may know about God is known through Christ. He is the ultimate complete revelation. He's also a perfect revelation. Hebrews 1, beginning in verse 1, Long ago, at many times and many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, meaning he gave them words, which are great. We'll talk about that in a moment. But here's the ultimate. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he's complete revelation. He is perfect revelation. He is also final revelation. Nothing else will ever surpass Christ. He's final revelation. John 14, 8 and 9, Philip said to us, said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Now, I have to pause right there. I don't know if rolling your eyes is inherently sinful. If Jesus did it, it's not a sin. If he was ever going to roll his eyes, though, I would think that would be the moment. Show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Insert eye roll. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And so, the living word, Jesus Christ, the pinnacle of special revelation, he is complete revelation, he is perfect revelation, he is final revelation. And that's our hope, is to know God. If you know Christ, then you know God. Now, under that, highly connected, since Jesus Christ is called the Word of God, the Word made flesh, we have the written word, the written word of God. What does it consist of? I gave you a little list here. There is divine speech. Thousands of times the Bible says, thus saith the Lord. I like the King James there. We just have that, that old-fashioned sense that God is speaking over and over and over again by one count somewhere in the vicinity of 7,000 times in the Bible. It's very, very clear. You have dreams and visions which God has given throughout various courses of time in various ways. You have theophanies, appearances of God, Christophanies, appearances of Christ. That's what we're talking about in our morning series lately. You have the internal thoughts to prophets and apostles. These are internal revelations given to them. 1 Corinthians 2 speaks of these. Uh, this is before we have a written word. Those are, those are given and then they're written down. And that becomes what we have in our Bible. You have the acts of angels. Daniel chapter 9 is giving the word of God, giving the, the, the written word, which is now recorded in the Bible. You have, of course, Jesus' life and teaching. John 20, these things, these signs have been given that you may believe. Everything that he said. By the way, a little interesting note here. I heard a liberal say recently, a liberal pastor, uh, he was making fun of expository preaching. 
he was saying that, you know, we have so many wonderful sources of truth. The Bible is wonderful, but but I want to go beyond the Bible. I want to uh, tell people things that we all know are true. That you should be kind to people. That you should be uh, you should be moral and and this and that. And one of the proofs he gave is he said Jesus almost never taught from the Bible. Okay, what's wrong with that? Everything Jesus says is Bible. He doesn't have to teach from the Bible. In fact, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, Matthew chapter 5, not only does he teach from the Bible, he corrects misconceptions about his Bible, and and he adds not to revelation in the sense of changing it, but he adds to it in the sense of adding to our understanding. The Old Testament, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust in his heart for her has already been guilty. So um, that argument doesn't hold. Anytime Jesus opened his mouth, it was Bible. That's why he's called what? The Word of God. He is the Word. So we have the living Word, Jesus Christ. You have the written Word, which is the closest we can come to the living Word right now. How do we know about the living Word? It is through the written Word. That's why we have four Gospels. And then finally, we have miracles. These are unique moments when God reveals himself and his power. In most cases, a miracle is an unusually powerful work of God that amazes people, it reveals God, it authenticates his revelation, and it authenticates the revelation bearer. Why is it important that the apostles committed, uh, permitted and, and did miracles? It's important that they did miracles because they had a brand new message. And particularly as Jews, they were preaching first to Jews saying that you have missed the Messiah. And so they better authenticate that message. You have, for example, Acts chapter 3, Peter and John uh, raising up the lame man at the temple gate. And they brought him to faith in Christ because of that miracle. We don't want to mix up miracles with providence. When you go to the grocery store and the, uh, the, the, the bill that you pay at the cashier ends in two zeros, it was exactly $101. It's a miracle. No, it's not a miracle. You had a 1 in 100 chance of that happening in the providence of God. Um, I found a great parking space. It was a miracle. Uh, I, well, sometimes I've said, I see so-and-so in church. That's a miracle. I, mean, I, under- I can almost put that in the miraculous. The providence of God is not miraculous. Um, the Apostle Paul never said to anybody, you should believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because haven't you noticed how God has subtly been working in your life? No, he raised someone from the dead and people would say, oh, that's the God I want to serve. And so throughout points in history, God has worked miracles and they tend to come in big clumps in the Bible if you'll study that on your own sometime. They come in clumps with the prophets, come in clumps with Christ, come in clumps with the apostles, and they will come in clumps at the end of time as well. And so uh, some, some are dissatisfied with the low level of miracles today. First of all, you don't know how many miracles God does every single day. He's not obligating himself to to tell you. God does miracles all the time. We don't need to go pursuing them, though. And somebody might say, but we need miracles to believe the gospel. There's a whole movement that says that. The Signs and Wonders movement says we need miracles today so that we can believe the gospel. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from what? The word of Christ. And in the word of Christ, what do we have recorded? Miracles. Anybody can believe because they see something they think is spectacular. Jesus said, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And so we have the word of God. So we have special revelation. The living word, the written word, miracles. All of them speak now very, very clearly, very, very directly to the existence of God. So that's what we have this morning, and we actually have about five minutes if we want to take a question or two about, let's stick to the existence and knowability of God. Um, We can ask about extra biblical arguments or biblical arguments, either one. If you don't have any questions, then we'll dismiss. But uh, who has a question on this side? We'll do this, the sheep. Caleb.
Okay, let me let me paraphrase this argument. The argument is, and I've heard this one, the argument is, well, you can believe evolution and the moral argument because somewhere along the line, uh, tribes of people figured out that if they are selfless and if they are self-sacrificing, that's actually better for society as a whole. What happens then if you believe that? Evolutionists are Marxists. Evolutionists are communists. Because you take that to the next level, those in power tell those not in power, you need to sacrifice for the common good because that's what we do. That's what evolution leads to. It leads to Marxism. It leads to the idea that society now is supposedly truly God, and, uh, but it's not really society. It's those running society. And so the argument that self-sacrifice is actually the best thing we can do, and that sounds really good, but it ultimately will lead you to Marxism. It'll lead you to oppression. It'll lead you to totalitarianism. Because it's not me saying, I think I will self-sacrifice. It's someone else telling me, here's how you're going to self-sacrifice. Big difference between those two, isn't it? So, um, yeah, that sort of makes sense, uh, but you're right. It falls apart really fast because it, it just leads now to sin because self-sacrifice is something I decide to do that shows that I'm made in the image of God. Somebody else telling me that you need to sacrifice in ways you don't want to, that shows that they're acting like their father, the devil. So there's a, there's a big difference there. Good question. On this side, not the goats, the other sheep. Any other any questions? The existence and knowability of God. There are fewer over here, so this is actually the elect, right? <laughs> Leon. Yeah, yeah the, the, exactly. The Antichrist. Uh, in the book of Revelation, is it some in some way going to either falsify uh, some sort of resurrection? And we're not told exactly how, but it'll be believable enough that the world will believe in him. Ironically, Jesus Christ really was resurrected from the dead, and the world did not believe on him. Um, but Leon's exactly right, because, like, for example, the, uh, the uh, uh, magicians of Pharaoh, they turned sticks into snakes. Now, I love the fact that Aaron's stick ate theirs, um, just showing who's really in charge. But yes, uh, miracles alone do not prove um, the existence of the God who is behind the miracles. You have to have the living word, you have to have the written word, and you have miracles that all go together. That's why the Signs and Wonders movement is so dangerous, because they, they can do just enough crazy stuff that seem miraculous to pull in millions and millions of people. Um, by last count, somewhere in the vicinity of five to six hundred million people worldwide are completely bought into the signs and wonders movement, into the prosperity gospel. Um, and so, uh, yeah, miracles alone. Well, come to our church. We do miracles. Well, come to our church. We tell about the God who does miracles. It's a big difference. Good question. Back over here to the uh, more sheep. Yes, Jimmy. Oh, like if you want to connect with an unbeliever, maybe? Okay, so if you're trying to connect with an unbeliever, um, I, I, I like the one-two punch of the, the um, anthropological argument and the moral argument. Okay, the anthropological or not the moral argument, uh, the anthropological argument, which is the moral argument and also an appeal to general revelation. So if somebody says, well, I don't want to read the Bible, you got to get them to the Bible very quickly. But okay, for this conversation, we won't talk about the Bible. What do you believe is right and wrong? You believe lying is right. You believe and you go through the moral argument Um, and then you go through the design argument as well that. Um, look around you, look at trees, look at how the universe is made. Don't you think that somebody designed that? I mean, you drive a car, and if I told you nobody designed it, it just came up, you would think I was nuts. So you start with those two, but then you say, look, ultimately, honestly, you're, you're not going to comprehend this until you hear from the Savior himself. So can I read the Bible to you? 
So I, I like those. I like the moral argument. I like uh, the, the general revelation argument because that's something everybody can relate to. There's one more, by the way. It's not, it's not really in this section here, but the image of God argument. The image of God argument is very connective. When you tell an unbeliever, did you know that you were made in the likeness of God? That you, you're just like him in so many ways. That's very appealing to people. Now, you also say, unfortunately, you're a flawed, sinful version. And so now you can get to the gospel through that. But, but I've gotten to speak to unbelievers about the fact they're made in the image of God. And that's very touching to them. I, I, I talked to one guy in Target once. And we were in this really long line, a COVID line. And so between our masks, we were, well, do you believe in God? And we were trying to talk. And I asked him, do you believe in God? And, and he said, you know, it's interesting. I've been wondering about that. And I told him, did you know that God made you just like himself? And that blew his mind. He said, I've never heard that. What do you mean? So we're going along. We're in line for half an hour or whatever. I got to tell him about how God has made him like himself. And he never heard that. I've never said that to anybody and had them say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. It's very, it's appealing. We want to, we want to believe that because that's how we're made. So great questions. Let's go ahead and, and finish up. And, and as always, you can send me emails with questions. And I'll answer them in a week or five um, as soon as I can. Let's pray. Our Father, you exist. You are there. You are the living God. And we've talked about lots of ways that we can maybe use our little paltry minds to come to the logical conclusion that you exist but ultimately we know you exist because you have opened our eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and we will never look back now we know that to try to not believe in God is the most illogical the most wicked and certainly the most destructive thing we can ever do the fool has said in his heart there is no God But, Lord, there are those that are still there. We pray for our friends and family, our co-workers. We pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. However you would choose to do that, Lord, ultimately it will be that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. But help them, Lord, to understand they are made in the image of God. Help them to understand that they are moral beings. Help them to understand that they are designed. Help them to understand, Lord, that the most logical belief there is, is belief in God. That they have been caused by the first cause, who is our great God, whom we know as Yahweh, as Jesus Christ, as the Holy Spirit. Thank you for these who are here this morning. I pray that their hearts are blessed, knowing that you are there. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we'll see you in a few minutes.